This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hey, everyone. This is Kara Swisher. You may know me as the person Donald Trump calls Kara Podcast, but in my spare time, I talk tech here on Recode Decode. Every week since 2015, we've been bringing you candid conversations with the most important people in tech and media. And now we're doing a survey to learn more about you and what you've liked. Your answers will help us plan the future of Recode Decode to better serve you. So please, if you have a few minutes today, take the Recode Decode survey at recode.net slash pod survey. That's recode.net slash pod survey. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the one person Tim Armstrong wishes didn't have his cell phone number, but I do. And in my spare time, I talk tech with him, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here with Recode's Jason Del Rey, who recently put on an event in Las Vegas, which we called an evening with Code Commerce. Hey, Jason. Hey, Kara. We talked to a lot of people there in Vegas. We talked to DTX CEO Tim Armstrong, who used to be CEO of AOL and Oath, and before that worked in a very high-ranking job at Google, and also Poshmark CEO Manish Chandra. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Tim's trying to get in on the direct-to-consumer brand uh, rush that's happened over the last few years. We had a lot of questions for him, including what the heck he's trying to do, putting on events that he says will be a cross between CES and Coachella. And then Mm. Manish uh, runs one of the top five shopping apps in the country that's become super popular among women who want to sell and buy Uh, lightly used fashion items. And so that was fascinating just hearing about how he built that company up and what he's trying to do from here uh, to separate from the pack, including eBay and other competitors in the space. Yeah, and they both have been around a long time. Uh, Manish reminded me, I met him somewhere else when he was at another company. And of course, I've known Tim since the beginning of time. Yeah, Tim's been around since the beginning of time. Uh, Manish, I think, ran another company called Caboodle back in the day, Mm -hmm. which um, also had to do with fashion, but you didn't actually buy the items, which makes me scratch my head. But okay, he sold it. Tim, it'll be interesting to see whether he's in at the perfect time for this direct-to-consumer, you know, rush that, you know, we're talking about companies like Glossier and Casper, mm-hmm. um, or whether he's late, which was um, a question I had when I first heard about DTX. Yes, you did. And you asked him that on stage. So without further ado, let's do this, listen to these interviews, these two interviews, the first with DTX CEO Tim Armstrong, and the next with Poshmark CEO Manish Chandra. What's up, man? Good to see you. Good to see you. 
Oh, this is such What have you been up to, Cheekbones? Well, the first thing was... Sorry, that's I, my name for Tim. I, I thought going to the commerce business would not... The Red Chiaris wouldn't show up when Kara had uh, emailed me and said, hey, are you going to be around March 3rd? Could you come out to Las Vegas? And I was like, that's really weird. It's the same dates as Shop Talk. Yeah. And little did I know that you guys are at Shop Talk. Well, so thank it's you. Good to see you here as well as the Good uh, to see you. You're never going to get rid of me, Tim. Um, I'm going to start, if you don't mind, Jason. Yeah, sure. So, uh, what, I'm not going to stop you. Okay. What What are you doing? What are you doing? Because, like, okay, I, I don't even want to, we'll go into oath later, but <laughs> let's just, like, what do you, what, well, how did you shift to this? This is, I am unclear because you were the media person. Yeah. So, what happened? You were um, advertising media. This is completely a, another yeah. direction. So, I, probably about a year and a half ago, um, started spending a lot more time just on where the kind of sort of underlying infrastructure in the world was changing around uh, the internet and mobile and, and uh, all the things that we talked about for years. And one of the things that stood out to me was there's been a couple times in my career where there's been what is basically a fundamental platform shift. And I felt like direct-to-consumer was something that was going to be a platform shift you know, not for probably the obvious uh, reasons, but some of the reasons that were less obvious, but things that I thought were important for the future. One was data management, just in terms of like things like GDPR and things like that were happening. And I think the power in data is going to shift back more towards the consumer side over the next, you know, 10 or 20 years. I thought that would fuel um, direct-to-consumer. The second is that the product development cycles that were happening at the direct-to-consumer companies were much faster and much deeper than what was happening in kind of the normal channels of product development. And I think that that's another thing that over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year period, these companies are going to have a real advantage in terms of how they develop products and distribute them. And the third thing was just the two-way communication. We At uh, DTX, we have a growing team, but one of the things we say is, you know, two-way or no way. And I think that the two-way... Wait, what? Two-way two or no way. Sounds like something from San Francisco. But... Uh, but uh, <laughs> So uh, two-way meaning what? <laughs> two-way communication with the, the customer having a relationship with them. I see. Okay. Um, Kara, sure. I'm sorry. Hey, I, I asked. Fine. What do you want? Um, <laughs> and uh, and the, the last thing was just I, I think from a uh, you know from how the relationships between consumers and companies are going to change. This seems like a really important trend, um, and probably there's a really big opportunity here. There may not be, but that that's what got me interested in it. And then what we're doing right now is really kind of two simple things. One is we're putting investments directly into DTC companies. So we've done a number of those and we'll do a few more. But the second thing we're doing is spending a lot of time. I, I didn't, there's a lot of acronyms in commerce. I didn't spend as much time in commerce, but I've learned a lot of them. Um, one that I hear all the time is when we got into this was, was CAC, Customer Acquisition cost and really on the operating side of the business what we're doing is is not CAC it's CRAC which is an unfortunate uh, acronym that's but uh, yeah, but it's it's it's, uh, it, it's it's customer revenue and acquisition cost and having the the balance on the equation of those two things so we're going to be testing things in 2019 some experiences and and other things that will hopefully bring put the R back in the the CAC equation and uh, we're, we're, that's what we're working on. Wow. So and I have another project out in Santa Monica I'm working on, which is separate. It's more of an engineering-specific project um, that uh, we'll, we'll talk about later in 2019. All right, all right. Let's start with the, the investment. So you've made, yeah. I think you've made about six, or, is it six already or announced six already? Yeah, we've announced six, yeah. And what, 
What similarities do those companies have? And maybe you can tell us a couple of them. Yep. Um, so all of them have the following characteristics. Uh, one is that they're all two-way companies and they, they have very deeply thought about how, how deep in the two-way relationship they're gonna go. One I would just pull up, pull up is Dirty Lemon. Uh, and the founder What's of that stack. It it's called Dirty Lemon. It's a Dirty. drink. It's Irish Nova okay. is, is the corporate okay. name. But Dirty Lemon's the brand name that people know about. And it's a, it's a beverage company, a drink company. And one of the things that struck us when we, when we met, when I met with Zach was he, you know, Dirty Lemon does transactions on text, on text commerce. And they've gotten pretty well known for in the commerce industry. Um, but when you listen to Zach, how he talks about the company, how he talks about testing product with consumers, you know, from the front end all the way through the payments system, he's incredibly uh, thoughtful about the relationship and taking all the friction out, but also about product development and the science behind how he's developing more and more products in the future. So I, I'd say that's thread number one. Um, thread number two is the companies we're investing in know their unit economics at an incredibly deep um, level and I think one of the things that's striking is when as we, in they work like the unit economics work yeah they, they work or they know why they don't work um, and what they're testing to make them work and but uh, I would say all the companies we've invested in have really really deep understanding of what a single <laughs> unit and what I like to say is the net 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 you know cost um, all of the costs are loaded into that and I think they have really real clarity on that and I'll give you an example of a, 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 one of the investments we did in Olive in June, which is in Third Love is the same. We also invested in Third Love. Um, the founders of Olive in June and the founders of Third Love, they understand um, to such an incredible extent, basically the unit economics. Uh, and if you look at Third Love's example, all the way back to what the manufacturing process cost the foam they develop uh, for their garments at the factory level all the way through, you know, what it's costing them to distribute it uh, on the street to consumers and the relationship there. All of June is an amazing company that's coming out with some really cool products shortly that uh, is really is in the kind of beauty uh, industry. They, the founders ran um, essentially nail, nail salons and beauty salons in Los Angeles, you know, for, for re really super celebrities. So they understood how to deal with customers. Then they decided to go to DTC and try to distribute, you know, all over the country uh, with products. And because they had a small business or small businesses that they ran very successfully, they were able to take their mentality in, this, in that business, running the business successfully, learn DTC and translate it. But they have done an amazing job of really thinking through what the what the unit economics are going to be for doing someone in a salon, someone at home, and being able to compare those. And the last thing, as I would just say, is, is really the founders themselves. Like, we're looking for people who are obsessed with the categories they're in. And everyone talks about that, but there's a big difference between meeting with founders who are in it for the money and in it uh, just for a financial purpose versus the founders that are in it because that's like they can't help themselves. They're so obsessed with what their product is, their category, and they typically have been doing it. Some of the people we've been investing in have been doing it since they've been really small children, like they've been interested in that category. Um, so that's 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 what so the how much are. money are you putting? Where are you getting this money? Um, it's all it's it's all self-funded um, okay. right now. Tim's had a good career. Uh, no, I'm, I'm okay. aware. And okay. so uh, so we're We've had a lot of people approach us to put money into the company mm -hmm. already, and we've turned everybody down. 
And the reason is, going back to the unit economics, was I didn't want to take anyone's outside money until I felt like the money we were using was used correctly. And we may raise money in the future, but as of right now, we're... And how much do you put into these companies? Uh, we're putting typical? in... Because there's, there's been efforts at this, like science, I mean, uh, these these efforts to create companies. Yes, we're not, we're not creating companies. You're not like yeah, a we're, factory we're, of these We're getting companies. behind founders. Right. Um, so we're, we're putting in hundreds of thousands to millions of, uh, of dollars and then and a couple cases more than that. And what's your typical? That you're the first money in, or uh, we're we're right between um, seed and right at the end of the A round. And what are what are companies looking for from you, right? So so some of these companies have had some success already, and so right. they could probably go get yeah. term sheets from a yeah. lot of Mo- most of the companies we're in are oversubscribed. Like they already had their investors would give them all the money they they could. Um, so we've gotten into deals because of the following reasons. Um, one is the team we've put together at DTX, two people here, David and, and uh, Olivia are here. I don't know where they are, but they're in the back of their hands. We have hired head of talent, somebody who's like an excellent uh, recruiter who helps the companies recruit. We have uh, marketing, Olivia, who's, who's one of the best social media marketers and marketers in the world. David, who runs operations and one of the best operations and data people. Uh, we have... Um, a retail analyst from Goldman Sachs uh, on the team. So when people come to our offices, I'm I'm putting up the money for all this. The partners we have and the companies we're investing in get to use those resources. And I think they're kind of actually really surprised when they come in to meet with us. Um, You know, we have a lot of functioning people on our team that are experts at different areas and we're able to offer them the services. You know, we'll invest. We also offer them services. I'd say we're also helping a number of other startups without investing, just basically being, we like to call ourselves very founder friendly. And I think the, ter- the terms we do in terms of how we invest, what we invest are very founder aligned. Um, and so I think we're, that, that's why people are letting us in their deals or coming to see us. Would you call yourself a venture from that? Because last we saw you, yes, you were busy putting the ungodly merger of Yahoo and yeah. AOL together. Yeah. Um, which didn't end well, yeah. I would say. Um, and then you were in media, and you were naming, renaming the whole thing, that name you called it. Um, what, what, what prompted you to move this way? I mean, you talked about direct-to-consumer. You did yeah. talk about direct-to-consumer media. Yeah. You had talked last time you were on one of yeah, my stages. Yeah, Jason. you were at our code conference last year, Karen and Peter Kafka interviewing you, and I, I noticed, you know, pretty quickly that you were using direct-to-consumer terminology. Yeah. And so to, um, you were probably thinking, I mean, you yeah. were obviously yeah. thinking along these lines yeah. from then. Were so. you just like, oh, God, these Verizon executives, I want to kill them, and I got to get out of here, or what? No. No, it, um, yes. But. Yes. No. Yes. Um, <laughs> Verizon, so one, let me just talk about Verizon and, and Oath for one what? quick minute. Um, you know, one is, I think Verizon, again, I'm, I haven't been involved in a while there, so, but this is my outside perspective, having been there when the, this stuff was starting. I think 5G is going to be revolutionary. Uh, and for Verizon, that's, that's really, I think Verizon's, from the outside, just reading what they're talking about now, and it was when I was there, that's their number one priority. And I think that the assets that we had put together at Oath, which was a billion consumers and seven or eight billion dollars of revenue, which are all digital, um, you know, I think are assets that play really well into what the 5G landscape is, is gonna look like. 
And I, you know, when I was at, started at Verizon and all the way up almost through when I left, there were multiple strategies there, multiple. There was a Go90 strategy for media. They, they had, there was three or four different kind of media strategies. We were one of them. And I think to be honest with you, what's happened and what was happening and what we did um, up until people at the company knew I was leaving before I was gonna leave because we announced it to the management team is it made sense to integrate Oath and Verizon together because um, while I was there, the most powerful thing that could be done is having Oath distributed on Verizon phones, having uh, really Verizon's content strategy be what, what, uh, what the Oath assets were and go now. We finally got all those things put together. So I, I, again, I don't know, I have the up-to-date stuff of what's happening at Verizon today, but if you were gonna go compete in 5G, it makes a lot of sense to have one coherent strategy behind that and, um, and go compete. So I think, you know, your perspective might not be, it didn't end well. My perspective is it started with multiple strategies and ended with one, which is now it's Verizon Media, it's all integrated, and I, I hope, and, and I'm, I feel like a proud alumni of it, I hope it scales like, like you know, like yeah, crazy. Yeah, because telco executives are so good at content, as we're seeing over at AT&T. Well, but that's enough. Poor Richard so, Plepler. But, um, but, but, but in terms of, you talked about direct-to-consumer. Yeah. Was that in your head? Like the, Yeah, I mean, I... Because you you've know, never spoken a word of commerce to me in our long history, except for advertising, like selling to... Yeah, so I, you know, again, just to go back, you know, probably previous, way before, before I met you, in, you know, 1993 or 1994, I had a newspaper in Boston and the newspaper was, I had one, and then we ended up buying another one that was in Harvard Square. And, you know, that was my first lesson in commerce and how, like, direct-to-consumer works. We used to have, like, a coupons page and that, and Harvard students used to take, like, Newberry Comics. Um, and uh, does anyone know what Newberry Comics is? I was asking people earlier. Yes, so some no. people. Thank you. I don't know. I, I I can I, you tell me? I don't yeah, know. You know do you know what it is? Nope. No. no. It, was, it was a record store. They used to sell records and CDs and things like that. But... There were a whole bunch of advertisers in that that were in Harvard Square and in, in Cambridge that used to put coupons in, in the newspaper. And the results were that the consumers would basically use the coupons constantly, but they would build up relationships. And at one point, the Newberry Comics people said, we're going to cut our marketing budget and we're stopping advertising in your newspaper. And, you know, we knew from dealing with all the people who used our newspaper that we're like, well, they really like your Newberry Comics. That's probably not going to go over well. And they pulled it out, and one week later they came back and were like, put it back in. Um, and the reality was is that the relationships that they had built up with all these consumers mattered a lot. And then if you fast forward when I was at Starwave, Paul Allen's company, you know, we did, I did Snowball, did uh, Google. You know, in the last 20 years I've only done Google and AOL really, but all of those experiences basically, all the stuff I did on the media side was all two-way relationships. And the more time I started to become, I, really what happened, well, the reason I thought about DTC is I started to, go back to those memories based on meeting a lot of the DTC founders. A lot, I'm coaching a few CEOs for DTC founders. And when they started talking to me about it, and I started to think about things like GDPR and some of the things that are happening underneath the surface that I think are gonna change long-term, I thought, wow, this might actually re-engineer re the entire way commerce is done. And this is a really interesting opportunity. So I don't know, I'd spent almost 10 years at AOL and doing Oath and Verizon and all that other stuff. And they were going to integrate it into Verizon. I'm like, you know what? What's the next thing that I would be interested in doing? And I, I, I've been really passionate about it, you know, for the last couple of years, thinking about it, studying it. And, um, you know, DTX was an opportunity for us to, I don't know, for me to just 
100% only focus on direct-to-consumer. That's all I've been doing. So the other piece that um, you've talked about a little bit when you made your announcement about the company was um, hosting, I think hosting or producing sort of these experiences. And yeah. I think you described them as a cross between CES and Coachella. Yeah. Okay. Sounds fun, right? No. It sounds, it I, sounds like the tenth of hell. I mean, <laughs> if it leans more, does it lean more Coachella? I, I mean, so... What do you what, mean? What do you you mean? don't understand yeah. what, what you you're mean? talking I, about. I was intentionally vague. Um, but, That's not vague in any way. It's right, just a strange. Right. It's strange. Yeah. It's like a, Strangely vague. Sounds like AOL Yahoo, but yes. go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so you well, can do a, well, if a billion consumers show up and we have $8 billion in revenue, we'll be so happy. What are you going to do? Um, we are going to bring direct-to-consumer brands to what I would say are first-tier consumer markets and second-tier commerce markets. And what I mean by that is um, if you watch what's happening in DTC and you watch what's happening in commerce, everybody's launching a flagship store in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, London. Um, there are tremendous consumers uh, in other parts of the country and in the world who would benefit greatly from having direct interactions with those brands. So you're doing like a Steve Case, like the rise of the rest. No, no, no. Going, he's, I don't, no, I know what he's yes, doing, yes. but he's saying no, there's talent I, in the rest of the country, there's other places. Yeah, there's, in my time. case, there's money in the rest of the country. And okay. by the way, there's not only money, there's really good relationships that will be built. And I, I just spent um, a week in China and Shanghai, and one of the things I spent a bunch of time doing was studying what's happening in new retail with Alibaba, things like that. The interesting thing of what's happening in China and what you see here is all of the statistics look very similar. And, and you know, a lot of people are talking about O2O, which is, you know, online to offline. We're thinking about offline to online. And I think when you look at the data and statistics, having someone have a physical interaction with brands or experiences and what it does to their online or mobile consumption is really important. And the second thing, I, this is another long-term thing, I think, there, I think society will continue to change where people are starting to get really smart about the time and energy they're putting online versus they're putting, you know, offline. And, you know, if it were a choice for my family and my kids and my friends' kids and, and, and other families or people that I know, I'd rather have them spend some of their time offline interacting with brands and services they've probably heard of. No, it could be digital brands. Um, but then having the experiences online, and I think the enhancement that will happen from offline to online so is as what, big as what? What is this online. Coachella thing you what? speak of? What is it? What, what do you, what do you plan to tell do? you? What, what are you like going to go to like Kansas City and like put a Casper mattress down? What like what, <laughs> do, you, what do you like whatever your bra company no, we, or what? No, no, we it it'll be um, a programmed entertainment and retail experience that will in a place in a place okay and in, in like a mall place or like a probably probably less mall. Cool. Less mall, more, cooler. He's more, Coachella. Yes, more, Coachella. more grass. Coachella's not in the mall. Okay. So it's like grass, you know, sand. What? Sand, grass, turf. Are you still figuring out or do you? Or do you no, no, we know. We, we have 3D models built of it and, and yeah, we know what we're doing. He's doing the fire festival again. Yeah. <laughs> No, but it's so much people. You're not go the first person who's brought that up. We, really? we go to meetings and we're like, "Hey, this is what we're doing," and people say, "That was Have Luper, you seen the documentary on Fire Festival?" So, um, so no, we we're also we're hiring people who are experts I at it. I, I watched the Fire Festival doc, to both of them documentaries, and incredibly entertaining, and also a case where there felt like there probably was could have been 
different people on the teams to help think about what okay. the uh, <laughs> right. setup and structure so and output was. Do you have, you think of having, inter sorry to push here, but entertainment, food, like the whole? Entertainment, food, beverage, retail. Uh, but commerce at the center of these, but, but like you want. Co commerce is part of it, um, but it's a more holistic type of experience. And, and charge people or are you selling things? Uh, you just throw a party in no, the No, Midwest. no, 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 both, both. People will pay and, and will sell things. Right, so the idea is to, yeah. is to get them interested in it, to get them to use your online products. Yes. And will you use just the things you're invested in or? No, 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 the investment, by the way, one thing I should have said, when we're investing in the companies we're investing in, we tell them upfront, we're gonna be doing a whole bunch of stuff in this space, you don't have to use any of it. Um, so you, you do whatever, you know, do whatever you want. You know, we want to invest you because we love you and we want to do your stuff. If our stuff works for you, great. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. So it's it, it's other partners. I'm curious about your timing of entering this market. So I yeah. think when first announced, I tweeted something and, and I was serious. It was not uh, sarcastic. I see a smile on your face. You don't believe me. <laughs> um, but I said, you know, I in, some people look at this space right now and think it's like peak direct-to-consumer. Like yeah. there's 10 different direct-to-home direct toothbrush brands. and Tons of venture, you know, the venture capital has gone like this over the last few years. Facebook and Instagram advertising, expensive, you know, not not sort of the same openings there. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, cost of acquiring customer. Um, so, what am I what am I missing there on the timing? Is it just yeah. the this is a coast? You think this is a coastal thing, and there's room in the center of the country? Or? No, I think I think you hit. So first of all, um, when you when you tweeted that, and I think I tweeted back at you about it. You did. Uh, which is, I think there's categories that are probably overstuffed with DTC brands and investments and those things. But I think Such the, as? the overall trend. I don't. I wouldn't comment individually. I'm not expert enough. But I, I think. If you see more than 10 products in one category and they all look almost identical and there's 10 different venture capitalists going after the exact same space, I'd say that, that you know, there's probably going to be a few winners there. By the way, I think the same thing's true on the OTT content space. Uh, there's a bunch of spaces online now you can look at where people are piling money in where there's, a, there's probably overinvestments. But DTC overall, if you went product by product, category by category, industry by industry, and DTC, there's so many companies you've never heard of and seen, like the, the, which rightly so, the, the Caspers, the Warby Parkers, those are amazing companies, and they get a ton of notoriety. There's also about 10,000 other categories that have, they don't have 10 people, they might have one or two, but they're doing interesting things in them. So I, I think what's gonna happen, like people ask us all the time, isn't there a DTC ceiling? These companies can only get so big. Um, that may be true, I don't think it's true, but the, what will happen is the aggregate of all these things together, if you have 10,000 DTC brands and they, they're $10 million or 50 million or 500 million, you know, they may not add up to look like Google and Facebook right now, but when you add up all of them together over time and what's likely to happen with the condensing of the market in the next 10 or 20 years, your DTC I think is gonna end up being a very significant you know, part of the future um, in the future of commerce. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this with DTX CEO Tim Armstrong. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? 
State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. One of the concerns in some of the DTC categories are, wow, these companies are they're growing faster than any company in, in their space or category before them, but they're not necessarily growing their market. And so do they just, you know, are they getting pumped with venture capital and then they're going to hit their ceiling you know, after four or five years. I think we've seen it a little bit in the mattress category, actually. So it, it sounds like you're saying there's just, you know, there are many, many more yeah, categories. The, problem, the issue I see in having not been in this industry and then coming into commerce more now, I, there's two things that stand out to me. One is every major press article around traditional commerce tends to be negative. Not, not all the time, but there's like so much angst around what's happening in retail overall, which a lot of it's deserved, but, but there are a lot of interesting things happening in traditional retail that I think are interesting. The second one is the DTC categories that are super hot, the four, four or five super hot categories, get 90% of the coverage and press. And what we're seeing, because we have people coming into our offices all day doing DTC, there's just an amazing amount of ingenuity, invention, and innovation happening in different categories. So I think, again, it's one of these things you're going to wake up, you know, five, seven, 10, 15 years from now and say, wow, this was like a really amazing transformation of how these industries happen. And again, it's going to be for the reasons that these companies all talk to their consumers all the time. The amount of product innovation that's happening is like truly tremendous. Do you, do you, what areas do you think that hasn't been seen? And give, give us an area that you think hasn't been over. I think there's categories like again, I, like if you go back to Olive in June, you know the there's nail, a lot of beauty stuff. Well, there's a lot of beauty stuff, but nail salons, for instance, what they're do doing in, in nails hasn't really hit the household. Like I live in a household with us, my son and, and well, my wife, my son and two daughters. You know, my my daughters and my uh, wife will go get mani-pedi type things in general, but my daughters really like to do it at home. They want to experiment with it. And I, every place I've been, I've seen that. I think all of in June are going to bring big city um, mani-pedi experience into everybody's home. And when you talk about the category creation, you know, I think that's going to create a new category, which is how in-home beauty gets done. And there's a lot of people in the different categories in beauty but a lot of stuff could be done at home. Um, and I think that's one of the things that you're gonna see. I, I, I won't, um, all of in June will have a whole bunch of product announcements coming out, but when you see it, I think you'll know what I'm talking and, about. And what, to what Jason said, yeah. you could have a lot of small businesses, like the, a lot of smaller, do you, do you ever knit them together in some way? Because what are you saying? These could be a lot of 10, you're, you're, you're 50, yeah. I think there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the future. I don't, we're not going to be the ones to consolidate them. But, um, but I think if you, if you take the beauty category or any category and you dig into all of the DTC brands and micro categories within, if you went to a Procter Gamble or Unilever and look at all of their products, and then all, each one of their products has multiple DTC companies 
trying to innovate that space. So I think you'll end up seeing the recreation of really large consolidated companies. It may not happen for years, but I think it will happen. And the reason is not because they were, you know, they're, they're cheaper than what happens in the Unilever, Procter & Gamble. It's because the product innovation, it's hard, if having spent so much time now with DTC companies, the amount of product innovation that happens at, that, at those companies with direct consumer interactions, you know, is, is, seems to me to be, um, deeper and faster than it is at most other traditional companies. Can I ask you one question yes. about advertising? You spent yes. most of your life in advertising, yeah. slinging yeah. ads, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Right now, the yes. data issues around them, yeah. your companies will need advertising. I just saw yes. Warby Parker on a national television ad, first time I saw one, I yeah. think. How do you look at right now the ad space, especially the digital ad space, where Jason was saying you're going to do a lot of your advertising on Facebook and yeah. Google, essentially. Yeah. A lot of pressure on those companies about what they're doing around people's data. Yeah. They dominate everything possible. Government breakup of this, yeah. these businesses, yeah. essentially. How do you look at the space now as someone who's been in it? And you're away from Google, you're away from the big yeah. companies. Yeah. When you look at it as someone who's going to be using them, um, are you like, they have to be broken up or they or their data abuses? Just to be real, so I, there's a few things on advertising right now. One is a lot of people are questioning advertising, almost like after the dot-com bubble where like, oh my, it doesn't work, or the, there's all these issues with the privacy things. You know, it's a little bit of that. I, I, my general sense is it's a good time to go in and invest and innovate in advertising right now because everyone's so fearful. And I think very few people share that viewpoint. Um, but I, I believe the companies that really triple down on advertising now because there's gonna be a lot of people getting out of it or trying to get out of it, is a good time for that. That's number one. Number two is I think the data- You're talking about building advertising businesses or-, or Building, or, innovating, you know, competing. Um, I think that that's one. I think two is the data issues. The data issues are real. I, I think that when you go back five years ago and talk to general consumers, they didn't really understand how ads were using data and those things. And not that everyone still understands it, but I'd say it's a topic now. Like consumers want to know where the data is, how it's getting used, and I think it's also hitting country by country, state by state now. So, and the we haven't been in a recession yet, and when we go, when there is a recession and people are more desperate for tax money for those things in general, you're also going to have people examining how all these companies are making money and all these different things. So you're going to have a combo of privacy data and economics drive what I think, I don't know, I don't, I'm not gonna say it's a breakup of the companies, I think it'll be more focused on the economics and who's got the economics. And again, my, I've said this publicly before, my long-term, the fact that consumers aren't getting a benefit financially out of advertising, other than getting products delivered, I think somebody will innovate a product that gives consumers back money for their data um, while they're using media properties and while they're using advertising. I, th I think there's a lot of value that... Or commerce. What? Or commerce or anything. Yeah, commerce, but also, you know, you could come up with a model where you paid consumers. Um, consumers got a, a payment from companies based on what data they used for the consumer. It, you know, in, in our landscape today, everyone, consumers have... Companies have, have consumer data and the consumers aren't savvy about it, but I think all these, all these changes eventually we'll have uh, consumers getting a bigger benefit. So, so what's your advice to the startups you're working with in this space on either planning for what you think is coming in the advertising world or taking advantage 
Yeah, so I think what's happening today, again, this is the experiences only we've had, so this may not apply more broadly, but the changes that have been happening on like, you know, Facebook and Instagram have done a great job, I think, helping these companies get off the ground. I think, you know, Facebook and Instagram, just like Google did when I was at Google, tend to change their algorithms of what works and what doesn't work. So I think recently in the last period of time, there, there's a number of changes. It might be happening because Facebook's innovating their product. It might be because they're using data differently, those things. But those platforms are going to continue to change their structures. And then if you're a DTC company latched onto those, every time they change, it's like a, it, you know, it's a, it it's a wave media. effect. Google did it. Right, Google did it. And Google, when I was there, right before I left Google, we did the Panda release that changed all the algorithms on the index. And we also changed the ads quality. And that put a giant ripple effect through all the customers. I see some of that happening now in the social media landscape. And people will draw, adjust. Um, but the biggest advice, you know, we tend to spend time with people is, you ha you're gonna have to adjust to those changes all the time, but you also have to start thinking about where else you can go to get growth. And that's why I said that the CR and the AC, instead of just CAC, a lot of people run around and say, oh, my CAC is changing, you know, this is all, these are all issues. You have to also be super aggressive about being a scientist on the revenue side. Like, where are the other things, that, places you can go to basically interact with consumers so they'll love your brand, you'll get first party data with them and you'll be in a good experience with them. And I think that's what I see in the DTC landscape. A lot of companies are really starting to think about that. And part of the reason they're thinking about it is when Facebook changed some of the algorithms, people popped their heads up and said, whoa, you know, this has been a great vehicle for me, but if they're gonna, like, if I'm gonna be relying on them and they're gonna make tweaks, I need to make sure I have other, other places, um, you know, to advertise. I think Facebook's, by the way, I think another credit to Facebook and Instagram you know, they've done a really good job of building an industry around DTC um, abilities for these companies. And I think that's another, you know, I think Mark and team get a lot of credit for a lot of things that they've done. This is another area where they've really helped an industry get off the ground. Um, but now, one, now we'll continue to change. One platform we haven't talked about is Amazon. And um, I know they, you know, they're making, they're in the midst of making a push to attract direct-to-consumer brands to their site. Um, if you don't play ball with them, you could you could see examples where you type in away luggage and then yeah. what's the first thing that shop uh, pops up because away is not there, but Amazon Basics luggage looks kind of similar, but like third of the price, you know, that seems like an okay model. Um, <laughs> uh, what, I mean, do you, yes. what, what is the discussion like around Amazon and the companies? Yeah, I think that, that is another topic that comes up. Uh, well, one, I should just say like our, we have an office in, in Soho so we're above the Amazon store and across the street from Allbirds. So in my chair where I sit, that's the we all sit at one. That's the weird Amazon the weird four, four stars. Store. So yeah. out our window, I see the Amazon flag, the top of it's in our window, and right across the street is the Allbirds. Um, and I'm, I'm very good friends with the Allbirds founders. I, I love them, and uh, I love the Amazon people too. You but, love but everyone. I, but you I, love but everyone I, too. What? You love everybody too. I don't love everybody. Right. But, but is... Uh, but the thing that's interesting is if you think about it is those two brands being across the street from those other Allbirds maniacal differentiation around their products. I think they've done a really good job. I think they have more coming. Um, Amazon, when we hear from DTC companies about like the away luggage example, they, they start to get described as like the retail tensions that, that you, you used to hear about from the CPG companies with the big um, traditional retailers about like who owns the data, they're launching white label products, 
those things. So when I sit in those meetings, having spent a lot of time at a lot of the big CPG companies and a lot of the a lot of the um, retailers, you know, I hear some of those same things coming, and I, and that might be the natural state where Amazon is doing a really good job. They're scaling their white label solutions with Amazon Basics, and the brands are going to be in a in a tussle with. Well, them. in this case, they're using the data from the brands to do so. I okay, mean, but on. this goes back to my data. This is what yes, but they never had data in this amount. So our brands you're talking to feeling like they have to, at some point they need to carve off part of their catalog and do business. Otherwise, they're going to just, you know, they're going to just you need let, to be on let, Amazon. Let this. Yeah, here's, here's what I hear them saying. Yeah. They have to be on Amazon for part of their business. And then part of the business, they're being careful about what they're putting on and not putting on. And I think that's that's very true across the board for most of the people we're talking about. Amazon's too big to ignore. And they're very benefit. Amazon has a great platform. They've done a really good job making commerce really easy. But the question is, if you're away luggage, you know, can you bet your whole farm on that? I, it sounds, sounds like no. I haven't, I haven't done that. Honestly, if I had a business like that, right. I'd back slowly out of the room with Amazon at right. every opportunity. Right. But, um, so but, people, I think it's what people, yeah, people are really trying to be thoughtful, yeah. I think, about what they do now with Amazon. But it's, that, that's definitely a topic that comes up. Right. Okay. Questions Any from the audience? audience questions? One right here. Sure. Hi. Mark Vermeut from New Start. Can, uh, can you stand up, please? Sure. Thank you. No worries. Uh, you touched a little, it sounds like, on moving the marketing mix off of paid social and some of the more digital platforms, obviously with experiential. But when you think about, because it, it sounds like you're looking for DTC brands to move more traditional and offline, where do you see those dollars going? Do they have scale to invest? And does programmatic TV play a role in enabling that? Yeah, I think one of the things that we've been talking about is, um, you know, you should go to whatever channel works the best, the fastest, and get you first-party data and a relationship, direct relationship with the consumer. So, you know, right, right now it feels like maximizing the digital channels is a really good strategy. Um, once you've done that, I think a lot of the brands we're seeing are going to TV. Um, mailings. And what? Mailings. Yes. At least in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. Like mailings. Dozens. Uh, TV. Yeah. So there's a, there's a, people are really starting to experiment, um, you know, off off digital. But but I would say this also in the digital landscape, just for one second. I think there are some fairly big platforms that people haven't paid close enough attention to or haven't taken the time uh, to to look at them. So I think there's a whole bunch of offline stuff. That's possible. There's also some digital platforms probably that they could be using. What, what are those? I, I think there's, like, I, again, I'm not involved in these companies, so what I'm about to say is not, I'm not showing for anybody. But I think, like, Pinterest is a really interesting property. Um, I think they have really deep vertical information on things. I think Reddit is interesting just in terms of the community wow. uh, there overall. So there, there's platforms like that that I think people are probably tried and toyed with, but those would be worthwhile spending time on them because they're big communities, they're deep, um, and I don't, I don't necessarily hear those a lot when I talk to the DTC companies, but if I were running a DTC company, those are the types of things that I would be really spending time like a scientist trying to figure out. And what about locational places? Like Helen was, Helen was just talking about WeWork deals. They're do, you know, things yeah. that are... I noticed recently in my soul cycle, there's suddenly products in there that yes. are showing yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are, I think the other thing is there's an explosion of physical products going into other people's channels. Right. Um, so I think that's another area of opportunity. So I think you're going to see a mixture of experiential, um, offline, 
and online. You know, we're more spending our time on the experiential side. I know the digital side fairly well. And, you know, I think there's, there's room to grow on digital and different platforms. And I think there's areas, uh, I think there's areas within offline too that-, that Instagram's the far and away. I, I think most people have, like, at least the companies we've met with, most of them have started with social. And I would say- You didn't mention Twitter at all. I, well, Twitter I would consider definitely also on that list. Um, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I'm actually not as knowledgeable on, on Twitter from an ad standpoint or marketing standpoint, but I would, Twitter would be a total natural also. What do you think? No, I think it's a cesspool. <coughs> what, you what? I think it's a cesspool. Cesspool? Yeah. Let me ask you one quick question. I like Andrew Ocasio. So are you, you're probably doing this also, Jason. What, Go for you it. guys have been doing live broadcasting. Yeah. Or you, you especially, I've noticed. What is the learnings and reaction to live broadcasting? What do you mean? I just like, what is it, is it? Oh yeah, you do, you're like live video on Twitter all the time. Now. Yeah, like so what, like what, what, down is, the what is your sense of it? Like, is it, are people adopting it? Into yes, it? it pushes people to the podcast. So Does it? Like, yes. So it works. And the columns or whatever. Right. The so there's an example, if I'm a DTC brand and I saw you doing it, I'm like, you're yeah. taking your time to do it, it must, something must be working. We, we did one from a beach in Hawaii that got 150,000 views in like right. seconds. Right, weird. so that's, that's, that's meaningful. I mean, it's, it could be I'm just crazy and people like watching. What? It could be, I have just, no idea what they're talking about right <laughs> we, now. We do life. live events. We do live things talking about a column or a podcast right. on right. Twitter. But for instance, if you had 150,000 live people watching, you probably would have been like the fifth or sixth largest cable channel in the United States at that time period. So yeah. like that, that's... It's me and Sean Hannity, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Any other yeah. questions here? Thank you, um, Yusuf Scully at SunTrust. A couple questions. Um, on the uh, DTC uh, side and the different verticals that you invested in, are they more on the experiential side or are they more on the physical side? Because it seems like you've spoken about both. And then on the unit economics, it seems to me that most of the companies that you invested in so far tend to be very small. So when you were talking about focusing on companies that have, that understand unit economics and have proven unit economics, are you talking about companies that have already reached that point? Because I'm assuming that most of your companies have only theoretically gotten to some understanding of unit economics. Yeah, I think just on the second part first, most of the companies were invested in, we know they probably, ha they haven't reached their maximum unit economics, um, but they have cultures and processes that will allow them to continue to get to whatever that end state is in general. So I, most of the companies we're dealing with are probably 10% or 20% into their unit economics. Some, some of them more, some of them like a third loves probably, probably more. Um, and then what we're investing in, so we, we've done a number of investments in physical goods companies. And then we did an investment into what I would call a director college, um, really just the consumers around college and niche.com, which is down in Pittsburgh. It's a great company, Carnegie Mellon engineers. Um, and really what they're doing is bringing a two-way relationship to the college process. And, and for those of you, I have a son right now who's going through the college you know, process or starting to look at schools, you know, having watching him look at the traditional ways to look at college information, which is like an editorially driven, hey, this college does this, this is how they do it, versus what Niche does, which intakes a lot of the two-way relationships with the college students themselves. He's instantaneously attracted to the platform that basically looks more like um, the other platforms 
you know, he uses. And I, so I think we're doing hard physical goods, but there's other things that we're doing which are more kind of digital direct-to-consumer products and services, and that's one of them. Um, you know, that's that's been really successful, I think, and, and really interesting model, too. Right here, and then last one, last one, quick. Uh, Ken Kassar, Rakuten Intelligence. Do, uh, do you have any particular bias as to whether uh, companies that you invest in, ultimately the end game uh, is acquisition by a traditional company versus remaining independent, maybe IPO? Um, the founders we're investing in, we go in with, a th with our, our theory is that they are obsessed and passionate enough and learning-based. Like a lot of stuff we look for, we meet with them as whether or not they're science-based versus opinion-based. And theoretically, if they're science-based, they'll keep learning and learning and learning. And, and if they can live on their own, you know, great. It, it, it strikes me as likely watching what's happening in the offline spaces that a lot of these DTC companies are going to be acquisition targets. And then I think that's why we say we're founder aligned, because at the end of the day, we, we've told the founders when we invested in them, you know, we're really going to work and counsel you and, and do whatever we can. You, you got to make up your own mind about where your output is going to be from this. So we, we're not at that stage yet, and uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know where it'll end up. But we're trying to invest in companies that we think can build standalone companies, and they're you know they're really interested in building big companies also. I actually have one more question that yeah, sort of piggybacks on that. Um, the topic of valuation when companies are raising money and entrepreneurs are raising money. I know I've never been an entrepreneur, but I've you know friendly and professionally know a lot of them. And I know there's a whole thing around dilution and you want, you know, you want a highest valuation as possible. On the other hand, you're, you're not seeing a ton of ac uh, acquisitions in retail to e-commerce over the last few years. There's a couple of giant ones and then tiny ones. But when you look at entrepreneurs that have had successful outcomes, you know, like native deodorant brand, you know, they raised less than $5 million, sold for I think around a hundred or, um, Movement watches out of LA, they raised basically nothing, sold for 100 to 200. I'm curious if you have any conversations around valuation and sort of the bar you're setting for success and whether you're pricing yourself out of, you know, option, yeah. acquisition yeah. option. Yeah, I think one, one, I'm glad you brought this up because I do think this is a mistake. There was a period of time where everyone wanted a mega valuation. And, they, and the founders got really diluted. The other thing, I should have said this in our thread, the other thing we want is we want our, the companies we're investing in, we want the founders to have really big stakes in the company. And, and I think having a really big stake for them has a whole bunch of psychological things, but it also, if they can become profitable faster, um, they, I think, will end up in a much better financial situation for themselves and for the company and those things. So. I, we've been we've had this conversation with every single one of the founders, and the, one of the questions that I asked the founders or our team asked the founders is, you know, how much future money raising you're doing, and what valuations you're going to be doing at, and what what's your end goal in terms of ownership stake, and I think that you get a lot of answers back on that one. A lot of people want to print the big number on their valuations. The, the other thing that's happened is when people are printing these big numbers on valuations, they're doing structured deals. Sure. And that's the other thing people don't realize is you might see somebody print a valuation of $500 million or a billion dollars or $2 billion on a private fundraising. What they don't see is the ratcheting that's happening on the structure behind. So the entrepreneur 
could end up in a situation where they're going to lose control of the company or, you know, if there's a hiccup in the market, which again, you got to remember like for anyone who's under the age of, let's call it 35 or maybe 32, they haven't lived through any kind of a disruption in the money raising market, the recession, a recessionary period, uh, those things. So you kind of forget like what it's like to be in that environment, but it's those things change really quickly. And I think the money raising side of things is very easy right now. Like we've had people just straight out call us to offer us money for DTX um, and, you know, to invest in it. And, you know, DTC is a hot area we're in it. So I can understand that. But, you know, really, I don't know if you're in the middle of a recession. I don't know if that those type of things are going to happen. So with the founders, we've been talking to them about, like, just, you know, make sure you set up your structure, your money raising for a rainy day, um, because it hasn't been much rain in the last 10 years. But when it comes, rainy days are also the best time to be set up structurally for success, because while everyone else pulls back, if you're set up well to get through that and you're happy with your structure, you're happy with the amount of money you raise, you're happy with your ownership, it's a great time to like put the turbo down on on kind of powering through those recessionary, you know, times. So we, we do talk to people about that. Great. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again to Tim Armstrong for joining us on stage. We're going to take another break now. When we get back, we'll play Jason's interview with Poshmark CEO Manish Chandra. Stay with us. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm excited about our next guest, uh, Manish Chandra, founder and CEO of Poshmark. Please join me. Wow. Fan club? Are those your, what are they called? Uh, Posh friends for PFFs. PFFs, I've, I've learned it. So what's, what, who, who are you wearing today and are they all from Poshmark? They are all from Poshmark. I'm wearing... Uh, Thomas Dean shirt, which is a small independent brand. This watch is Bell & Ross. I don't know if you've heard of that brand. I, you know, I'm a, I'm a basic guy, so no. But the belt is Gucci, you might have heard of that. I brand. think I heard of that, yeah. Price, $17? Uh, somewhere around that. Okay. How many people in the room know Poshmark? I'm assuming a lot of, okay. I was gonna, I was gonna ask you to give us the 30 second spiel, but um, I guess we don't need that today. So. Let's start with sort of, you know, we've talked on and off over the years, um, and I've just felt like culturally over the last year, I've, I've sort of just felt an inflection point. I think the App Store rankings um, reflect that. Is it just the venture capital you're pumping into advertising? Or t- tell me, like, what, what's, what's happened over the last year? So a um, couple of things. I think uh, we have... Uh, basically been in a very disciplined approach to growth. So if you think of sort of a lot of times, you'll see apps just spike up and then come down. For us, it's been a gradual climb up the ladder. 
a lot of it is built on not just you know marketing and bringing in new users, but also the loyalty of our users. So when you think of uh, of our platform, really the, the 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 fuel that drives it is the social commerce engine, and that's really all about people connecting, people following, and building those deep connections. And the result is that you know you have sort of this tremendous loyalty both to the actual sellers on the platform and then for sellers on the platform to the platform. And so. Early days, and I think up until maybe the last couple of years, when, when I thought of Poshmark, I thought of secondhand clothing, um, sort of across the spectrum of brands. Um, and then it, it seemed, so that's still how I think about it mainly, and I, I think that's likely how most people think about it. But when we've talked recently, you've sent across a different message around full price clothing and brands actually launching on the marketplace. So was that a force, like a, a, an evolution that just happened or is that something you all have tried to push on the marketplace? So to me, it, it seems like there's still plenty of room to grow in secondhand. We'll talk about Marie Kondo in a second and oh, that, that impact. Uh, yeah, we, we've always thought of us as a social commerce platform focused on fashion and lifestyle category where resale is really the fuel that drives it. So resale, in a way, democratizes retail. It really empowers anybody to be a seller, and certainly for you to have access to an unbelievable array of uh, products that are uh, available from people's closets. So that's sort of the first thesis. The second thing is, by enabling people to not just sell, but also curate on the platform, you really bring this social community together, which is something that is really missing you know, uh, whether you think of physical retail, you think of online retail, everything gets very static very quickly. And uh, what, search, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if you go to a typical store day one, yep. it's a little overwhelming. There's a lot of products. If you go to that same store day two, it's a little underwhelming. Nothing has changed. Whereas when we look at our time today, when we turn around, when we look at whatever we're doing, we expect things to be changing. We go on Netflix binges, we scour Instagram, we are sort of constantly consuming and refreshing content. How do you simulate that same experience in retail? In Poshmark... So you want, so you want retail to be... You're trying to bring back entertainment like, like you would have had when you window shopped in the, in the real world. Is there a piece a, of that? Absolutely. absolutely. So, you're competing, so you're competing for time with social networks? We're competing for time with social networks, competing for time with TV, but really more importantly, we're delivering retail in a way that suits the social generation that we are on, which is constant consumption of content. We want instant access, but also we want sporadic conversations. If you go back to retail 30, 40, 50 years back, you could walk into a store, you'd ask, hey, Jenna, I'm, I'm going for my girl's weekend. Help outfit me something, I'm, I'm right? Not. Or, or Jason could walk into a store 40 years back and somebody might say, hey, Jason, here's a hammer for you. And the hammer would be because you're potentially working on your deck and the store owner knows. I also do not do, I'm not very handy. Maybe I walk, in, maybe walk says, into a stationery store and there's a specific pen for you. That is beautiful. Yes, yeah. right there. Because he knows that Jason is writing that phenomenal book on the evolution of Poshmark, right? <laughs> So, so that, short that whole, okay. the, 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 the whole sort of uh, thing is this very intimacy that happens, which is not the same as sort of, you know, walking up to a store clerk, sort of really engaging, or the store clerks are even missing, or in, engaging with a chatbot. That's not really social. In Poshmark, you have 
millions of sort of interactions happening constantly. And the result is that our average active user spends somewhere between 23 to 27 minutes a day. There's little over 18 million listings that are shared and curated every day. And we have a community of little over 40 million registered users. So it become sort of something where it's become almost a parallel movement, which is in a way disrupting retail, but also democratizing retail. What is the, um, did you, you know, have you sort of hit on and, and, you know, grabbed onto a wave that was already happening in retail? Like, what, I'm, I'm curious about the, the trends, either economic or, or in society, that have sort of driven what, yeah. what's happening on your platform specifically. So my thesis and sort of our team as a founding team, there's, there's four of us who started the company. Our thesis was that social really is the key to discovery. I had a previous company called Caboodle where we really talked a little bit about social discovery, but there was no actual transactions happening on the platform. The second thing was in order to sort of scale, particularly fashion retail, you need almost an insane amount of inventory. So for example, at any given point in time in Poshmark, we have 75 million SKUs that are available. And third thing is in order to provide the social- Zero inventory on your- Zero account. inventory, not- everything is held by our seller stylist. You have to really engage and empower where anybody can be a seller. In order to make selling fun, you have to remove a lot of barriers on the platform. For example, we do not have any public reviews. You know, if you think of a large marketplace with no public reviews. In fact, the first three years, we didn't have any reviews at all in the marketplace functions. So those were the thesis. Now, what- Why why is that? Um, Because that's scary. I mean, I may not be your target, but that scares me, right? Really? Yeah. When you call Uber, do you look at the driver's review? I want it to be, yeah, like four, eight or above, or I'm canceling that. Really? No, I'm kidding, but <laughs> I did. <laughs> I'm not You could kidding. wait for a long time for that Uber or Lyft. Um, the, the, the reason is I think people don't want to spend time making all of those decisions. They want the platform to take care of it. So okay. we provide a layer of inbuilt trust for both the seller and buyer. We provide shipping. We provide sort of all of the buyer protection, seller protection built into the platform. Uh, But going back to your original question, what triggered it, I think the first thing was mobile. And uh, sort of the rise, when we first started the company in 2011, we bet the entire company is building a mobile app, which was considered very antithetical. And if I hadn't built a previous company, I may not even gotten the funding for this company to start the journey. Because everyone thought that for buying, you needed a website. And we didn't create a website until two, three years into the journey. Second thing is, I think, social media, which is both an accelerator in the joy of selling, but also an accelerator in the joy of obsolescence. So when you think of Marie Kondo, sort of what she's capturing into is not just the simple life, but the fact that our preferences and tastes are sort of accelerating constantly, that we should be rotating these items at a very fast pace. And then the third thing was really an accelerated demise of physical retail and major brands where sort of this emergence of smaller brands is happening. And that's what you were talking about earlier is we have hundreds of socially native brands that have been created by our community on the platform. That's not forced, that was naturally happening. What we did was we created a wholesale market, we added something called a boutique kind of concept, and that has sort of led to the acceleration of that aspect of our business. But resale is a fantastic business as well. Um, you mentioned a bunch of stuff there I want to follow up on. You, you just mentioned the wholesale business you, you um, started and how that ignited some entrepreneurs on the platform. So these entrepreneurs are essentially buying wholesale and they're just curating into, into collections that, that seem exclusive or what's the, 
What's the consumer end of that? So uh, uh, there's two aspects action. of it. Yeah. One is that the brands that are being curated there are in many times created by our community itself. So for example, we have a woman who's a large boutique owner. Uh, she's a mom of two kids, lives in LA. She had a big boutique on Poshmark and now she's launched a brand which has one of the very high followings on the platform. Thousands of sellers are carrying that brand and they will take that brand and a lot of it is just dresses and other kinds of clothing and they'll personalize it to their needs and their own, own style, which is almost, you know, if you go to a traditional show like a magic fashion show, people will pick up inventory and the boutique owners will then go and dress it up in their physical boutiques. That's sort of how it flowed because you have to connect that product to the customer. And what you are tapping into is not just one or two people, but thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of people picking that up. On the flip side, anybody can also get into the journey and start to create brands. So many of the seller stylists on our platform are now launching new brands, whether it's for kids or for men's or for, for women or jewelry brands. And they are following sort of enhancing their distribution with other sellers on the platform. Um, I'm curious, you know, as you grow more popular, now a top app, um, the brands that your sellers are selling, I'm sure are paying attention, right? The name, the name brands, the legacy brands. What is your relationship, if any, with them? Um, so we've, we've had some experiments with them. We've done a couple of larger experiments with the brands. I think one of the things that... Liqu liquidating inventory or...? No, we actually did full-priced inventory. We've done liquidation of inventory as well. Uh, a lot of it is a different kind of model. So it's almost like if you think of social media, traditional media, and how they've partnered, not partnered, you know, etc. I feel like social commerce platform like ours can really be a great partnership with traditional brands. And I think over the next few years, you'll see us doing more and more sort of partnerships and experiments and seeing and engaging in a way that can be very, very productive. Um, one of the ways, if you can think about is our seller stylist really can take that brand and take it to newer audiences that traditionally the brand is not able to reach. They can also act as you know, customer service. They can style it. They can also even fulfill it if the brand so chooses to do. And that gives a level of penetration into different demographics, different cities that is not so easy to get, especially with physical distribution and retail distribution kind of dying down. And then, you know, if you put your product on a large website, who knows who's going to ever find that product. So what's the hesitation? I'm assuming if it hasn't gone from experimentation to something broader, I'm assuming yep. there's some hesitation on the legacy brand side. Um, well, there's, it's, it's really figuring out the right model. Uh, so for example, on, on, on our platform, uh, the shopping is a very sort of different experience. So people will come and I'll say, hey, so let's say you're selling this jacket. I'll just say, I like this jacket. I may buy these this shoes. This is actually my wedding jacket from okay. 10 years ago. Never, I'm sorry, but- Yeah, you, you mean I, I never put it, it on- I fit in it again. I mean, it's been, it's been a while, so. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. Well, at some point, you know, it might go in Jason's closet. Yes. So, um, and, and so as people are sort of touching and liking these items, you'll see the sellers engaging with them. And then like today, for example, is one of the days where we have our clear out, so people will drop prices. You'll get a notification saying, or, or I may, if I like your jacket, saying, hey, this jacket is for sale, and I may pick it up. So that whole sort of model of this very hyper-personal engagement, you know, sort of a little bit of pricing flexibility, this sales cycle of starting from liking to actually purchasing, it's, it's a very disruptive set of behavior and phenomena 
And that's sort of something trying to figure out how do you fit it into a traditional fulfillment cycle and, and yeah. merge them together will take time. Okay. So can you talk about any of the brands you've worked with? Uh, we work with uh, Rebecca Minkoff and we did an early partnership with them. We, in fact, even drove a lot of traffic to their LA store and sort of uh, did back and forth. Uh, most recently, we actually put some of our, this was reversed, we actually put some of our seller stylist brands that they've created at uh, Macy's and uh, put it in the Macy's market. And that's been very interesting to see how that happened. There was a lot of uh, traffic that went into the store. But one of the memes that I saw, which was uh, quite surprising, was that many of the customers who came uh, wanted to buy the item they were seeing in the store on Poshmark. They didn't want to go to the cash register, which I thought was quite shocking. So came into the store, went on their phone. And wanted to, they said, where can I buy it? But you know, it was a physical item there. I'm sure Macy's loved that. It was, it was a very strange thing. I, I was very counterintuitive to me. I, I did not expect that to happen. So what are, do you think you keep on with that? Is that partnership still alive or is that? It was that... an experiment. It was a small experiment to, to touch it. Um, I, I think, the, again, the challenge of sort of working with different kinds of supply chain, demand chains, you know, working through the fast inventory cycles, as well as sort of the new consumer behavior, I think will lead to sort of fundamental reinvention of many of these, these flows, you know. Uh, I often talk about that the new generation of retail is discover anywhere, transact anywhere, and fulfill anywhere. Now, if you think about making that dream come true, it's a very hard problem. In fact, the only brand that's successfully doing it today is Apple, and that's doing it with very few SKUs. If you start to broaden it out and you have 75 million SKUs, right. how do you make it happen? it requires rethinking some of the problems. One of the big questions I've had about your business and marketplaces in general is, how do you, when, when, you, when you come to the expectations around delivery and convenience and maybe I, maybe I can wait till tomorrow, but I don't wanna wait four days. And you see, you know, Amazon with their marketplace, they're able because of their infrastructure to accomplish that. eBay and Walmart starting to work with two-day delivery, back-end services to help them fulfill. Do you need to figure out that piece and that speed to enable to really hit a different sort of scale? So one of the, the bets we made very early on was that two to three-day delivery is going to be a key advantage for us. So we actually created something called Posh Post in partnership with USPS Day One. Every single package that our seller stylist ship yep. actually goes through a USPS priority box. There's no choice. Yep. That's a minimum expectation of every service that we ship. And on every seller stylist profile, you see their days to ship, which is same day, within 24 hours, within 48 hours. So you can pretty much compute roughly, you know, what your expected time of delivery of the package would be. And because the and shipping you think, is... you think buyers are computing that or you... No, you... It, it, most buyers, you know, I would say expect, depending upon the distance, a couple of days of service. In fact, we have buyers who expect to order on a Wednesday and wear that item on a Friday or a Saturday for an evening out. That's sort of the expectation which exists. Having said that, I think we are far from an Amazon SLA, and there's, there's a lot of work to be done between uh, now and then. But that's sort of the core infrastructure around shipping is something we thought through and, and actually fought a very hard one battle uh, with USPS to create this simple shipping system uh, and, and that also creates a long-term competitive advantage because if you think about it, what we've created is a highly distributed logistics infrastructure where you're shipping from millions of small warehouses. Some are homes, some are actual real warehouses. And each of them is being shipped by a specific set of individuals. 
using a shared virtual infrastructure, which also matters a physical infrastructure, that's a hard thing to replicate overall. And, and to have that entire system working and functioning without touching the goods with a very high loyalty in the platform, that to us uh, over the long term becomes something that uh, you can take it down, you can take it down. Just think about it if you have 2,000 physical stores. Imagine if you could use our infrastructure to turn those stores into many warehouses so when the salespeople are not selling, they can actually be shipping out those items which people are buying from that store sitting in some other part of the world. But you're not yet, you're not yet making promises on, since you're still relying on the seller to decide when they can actually yes. get that out. You're not yet making promises like, you know, an Amazon type promise that order within so-and-so or buy purchase we, within we so-and-so. We have an expectation setting that's yeah. there on the, on the listing, but no promise, there's no guaranteed delivery within that two, three days yet, because it also depends on how quickly the seller ships that item. So I, I think I've seen reported that um, you all did somewhere around, or were expecting to do somewhere around 140 million in revenue last year, which would, would I, think, I guess, map out to gross-wise, I don't know, 800, 700 million, is that, am I in the ballpark? Or have you not talked about these numbers? We don't talk about these numbers. Okay, uh, small the, group of friends here. The, can... the only number which we did publicly talk about last year was that we had distributed a little over a billion dollars to our seller stylist. Okay, that's a lot of math for me to do, but that's over time, okay. I guess I'm curious, where, like, where is the next set of growth coming from? Whose market share are you eating? Um, does the product need to evolve in, in many ways to sort of grab new, new wallet share? Or is Marie Kondo on Netflix enough for you guys? <laughs> uh, Marie Kondo has definitely uh, been a great sort of uh, advocate of, uh, of you know, really recycling and, and looking at your closet in a new way. Uh, for us, I think we continue to grow our user community. And, you know, uh, we've been growing that at a very uh, fast rate, as you can talk from an App Store ranking perspective. Uh, we also continue to launch Posh Markets. And Posh Market is sort of a new innovation we did last year which is effectively creating a very immersive app-like experience within the platform. Um, so you can shop for men's and the whole app transforms to men, or you can shop for luxury and the whole app transforms to luxury. And so that is really a category expansion, but from a mobile native way. And that creates a very strong discovery social commerce experience where traditional tabbing or searching doesn't work. Uh, so so it's launched, not just like I'm navigating to a no, different- No, you basically, you, you effectively, it's almost like at the source, you put a data layer and everything processed through the data layer. So everything you see. So let's say you were selling a whole bunch of different things in your closet, uh, men's clothes, women's clothes, kids' clothes. If I enter the kids' market, I'd only see kids' stuff. We have something called a posh party. If I visited a posh party, you'd only see kids' stuff. So it's very immersive. You can just switch back and go to men. So we've launched plus size. We've launched kids' luxury. So that's sort of one area of expansion. Uh, second is continue to grow our network effect and, and, and build out bigger business. We publicly announced that we are expanding to Canada and we'll be launching in Canada this year. So that's sort of uh, another way of, of driving the growth. And third is uh, to look at other lifestyle categories like home, uh, which allow our seller stylists to participate in things that they love to do anyway. And so in terms of grabbing market share, I'm assuming eBay is somewhere that you're looking at and saying we, could car we feel like we could carve off this part of the business or that part of the business, or is that not? We, um, We've talked about eBay. Yeah, first, yeah, so. yeah. We, we've never really focused on, uh, on a zero-sum game. I mean, I, really, we, we don't believe that in this world, I think zero-sum is, there's disruption happening. You know, if you think about 
physical stores shutting down, you know, sort of many, many traditional brands either getting marginalized or disappearing. So disruption is happening. Um, I think for us, we believe that this is really a new approach to shopping, but really not so new. It's really enabling an approach to shopping, which is very human, which is very personal, that existed 50 years back. First came the big department store, then came the big websites, and pretty much took away the human from the experience. We're bringing back human. That's pretty simple. I mean, I think people are important. People are important. That's a, that's a good one. We're going to open up to questions in a couple of minutes. Um, do you have any indication that any offline retailers are um, considering making a big play in sort of the digital space, like the digital e-commerce space? So I've been waiting, you know, there's been a bit of consolidation among the digital players over the last few years. So still standing, Poshmark, ThreadUp, The Real Real. Um, I'm probably blanking on one or two, but there was consolidation a couple of years ago. And I, I thought there would be an appetite for acquisition and maybe it's valuation. I'm curious what you see or hear in terms of um, retailers feeling like this is a place they want to get to get into either through acquisition or, or building on their own. I think um, when you start to think of super disruption, which is what resale is doing beyond sort of social commerce, um, I think it's caught everyone by surprise. To be honest, even though we built a resale-based platform and social commerce platform, the scale and the speed of it has even caught me a little bit by surprise. You know, I feel, uh, I knew that we'd be successful, but to see how vibrant the space is and how pervasive people are using it is, and I, you know, there's lots of reasons that are happening. Marie Kondo is not the only reason. I think the whole sort of social platform and growth of social is really driving it. Uh, and I think when you think of the life cycle of a product and you start to extend it in a meaningful way, particularly clothing, it changes the entire way of thinking. So I think not just retail, but brands will have to respond to it. I think the challenge is how do you sort of disrupt yourself? And that's always been the problem, whether you look at media, right, where sure. old school brands are sort of shrinking and, and disappearing and new school brands are struggling to figure out the right model. And similarly, you sort of have this whole area in retail where uh, microbrands are rising and people are trying to figure out, you know, how to play with microbrands. Do I place microbrand in my store? Do I sort of do that? And by the time they decide that that microbrand has evolved and another microbrand is born. So in this whole sort of world, how do you play it? And I, we believe sort of the approach that it has to be much more platform oriented as opposed to a specific uh, niche or a specific sort of point. So that's yes or no that you've had acquisition conversations with big retailers? Um, well, no let's, talk, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's <laughs> talk. Lastly, and I'll open yeah. it up to. Um, so, I think your I think your company has raised something like a, uh, over 150 million in in venture capital. Um, when I see that among digital players, I, I then look at Stitch Fix's background of 42 million raised and the business they built, and obviously they had 20 dollar styling fee that helped absorb a lot of the logistics, but they own their own inventory. I'm I'm just. I'm curious for a marketplace with no inventory, A, what you need all that money for, and then... <laughs> Is that not a fair question? That's a fair question. What do you need all wait, that money wait, for? Wait, wait, I would, I would almost say, you know, when you think of a marketplace which is made up of cars, you know, nothing, there's almost like virtual software, not even a shipping. Uh -huh. What are they using that money for? Uber? Uh, I don't know, Uber, Lyft, whatever these guys, I mean, you see... Subsidizing. Subsidizing? Yeah. Okay. 
Why do you think you get a $20 ride to go 20 miles? <laughs> no, right. serious, serious question. Uh, no, I, I, I really think that, you know, um, to be truthful, I think uh, a lot of the work we did early on was, you know, getting a bunch of core infrastructure done, getting sort of the technology part. And at this point, you know, we're scaling. In fact, our last financing was almost 18 months back uh, overall. So, so the business is scaling, you know, uh, and I think in the grand scheme of things, if you think of sort of new gen of retail and, and everything, 150, 160 million is, is a decent amount of money, but in today's world, it's not massive amounts of money. Okay, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll come back to that. Does anyone in the audience have a question? I'm sure we do. Uh, one right back here. Thanks. Please so tell, you, us, tell us who you are. Larissa Summers with Optoro. Um, you talked equally, and maybe it was the questions, um, but about transactional needs a la Amazon and shipping timelines and SLAs and customer expectation. But you also talked very interestingly and compellingly about the change in resale in terms of what people are looking for and doing and actually participating in of their own volition. And as a CEO and founder of such a compelling marketplace, how much time do you spend thinking about the transactional nature of what Amazon's requiring you to do versus what people are actually doing and expecting in such a unique place like Poshmark? Yeah, so for us, you know, one of our core philosophies is um, you focus on love and money comes. And it's really all centered around user engagement and really empowering our seller stylists to curate, to merchandise, to sort of focus on it. The transaction piece is entry stakes. You need to make the transaction work very smoothly. You need to make sure shipping works smoothly, make payments, payment distribution, dispute resolution, customer service. And that's the stuff we spend the first three, four years really working through, fought many battles, you know, uh, and, and won most of them. Uh, and, uh, and, and that became the core infrastructure. And then it's all about creating a fair playground where five million people can come and play and sort of uh, enjoy, and for most people who are selling, it's part of their sort of enjoyment, not just money-making, and then it also certainly makes money on the side, and for some people, it is the core money-making, but they still enjoy the process of selling, and our sellers kind of become influencers from that perspective, as opposed to influencers becoming sellers. Um, the, the, the powerful part is that people are looking for that. People are looking for those spontaneous con conversations. People are looking for that curation. Uh, people are looking to find and be delighted and be merchandised in, in a way that the stores are not giving them. So it isn't just about resale, in my uh, opinion. It is really about curation and merchandising. The fact that the sourcing of that merchandising uh, in large part today comes from closets allows the merchandising and, and the product to be quite diverse. Uh, and that's what's delightful. And that's sort of what we see is people wearing a beautiful dress that could be high-end, and then they could be wearing... Uh, 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 a necklace or a pair of shoes that could be 10 or $20. And that's sort of what, if you look at what I'm wearing here, there's something that's $20, it's something that maybe three, $400. Do you have any more questions? I have a bunch more, so I'm gonna go right now. Um, instead of getting a non-answer on the venture capital yeah. question, I'm gonna go with uh, something I hope is practical. What, what is a marketing channel right now that you all have been pleasantly surprised about? And then what is one that is now challenged or disappointing for you? Um, so, surprisingly for us, in the last year or so, television has been a great advertising channel. 
Uh, and is region, regional or national? Uh, mostly regional right now, some national, uh, but it's been a, a channel of tremendous growth for us. Uh, Disappointing-wise, I would say middle of last year, Facebook really started to have challenges. Uh, we've what is, seen what some. Is that, what does that mean? Uh, I mean, they were not scaling. Facebook as a channel was not scaling. Instagram was not scaling for a period of time. But I think they're back to being much more robust channels. Does that mean too expensive, or like unpack uh, that for me a little bit? Not effective. Okay. Why do you think that was? Um, I think this was all, all around the Q2, Q3 timeframe when Facebook was going through sort of its own revectoring in a deeper way. They're going through a lot of A lot more, right? yeah. So you're back, are you back in investing heavily in those, in those places? Uh, I mean, in, in today's world, if you're going to do digital advertising, it's hard to not use Google and Facebook. Those are the largest I've heard, platforms. I've heard like, that, yeah, you're, being, you're, being part of a media company. Yeah, yeah. and so, uh, and, and then if you add TV, those are sort of the three big, big uh, channels. But we have, you know, fairly diversified set of sources overall in terms of how we reach. And a big part of our reach is very organic. You know, it's really our users going out and spreading the word, doing a lot of physical events and talking to other people. So having a social community, that becomes one of the very powerful ways in which you grow. One year from now, if um, we were to chat again and may maybe off the record and I get a little more candor in some places. Um, what would the success, like, what would you want to be telling me about that? Like, what does success look like a year or two now from, for Poshmark? Um, I think um, our men's business right now is just embryonic. It's just growing. In fact, uh, I was at an event in Phoenix last week, and it was the first time I had 10 or 12 men that I could stand with and take a picture. So our men's seller stylist is growing. I would love to tell you a year from now that most of your clothing, Jason, that you're buying is from Poshmark and many of the men here. Okay. Uh, any more questions? Otherwise, we'll, oh, one right here and then we'll wrap up. Uh, Indrik Lepsha from Blue Cap Ventures. Um, recently, you added Serena Williams to your board of directors. Um, she's a champion. Um, what was the thinking to add such a person to your board of directors? Thanks. Serena Williams, yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we just uh, announced that Serena Williams has joined our board of directors. Um, the, the thinking to me was to really bring someone who can bring a bunch of traits. Number one is a very, very deep thinker and sort of has an experience in board. Second is understands our consumer. And third is understands entrepreneurship. And uh, I was looking for someone who bring, brought all those things uh, together. The thing that surprised me in the very first conversation is it how helps much that she's also Serena Williams, right? It also helped that she's okay. Serena Williams. Okay. Uh, but in the first conversation, she actually knew, not only knew about our platform, had been using it, and had been thinking of integrating her fashion line uh, into the platform. And I thought, mm, I don't know. But actually, it was all true. We, you know, it was not just sort of, uh, uh, just love being shown. She actually had been doing it and uh, has been using it and also knew many uh, poshers, as we call our users, firsthand and knew their stories in terms of how they are thinking of quitting their jobs, full-time moms and doing it. So it was like someone who was very authentic. And for us, our community is super authentic. We've sort of generally shied away from people who are just, you know, uh, just spokesperson. And Serena is the real thing as far as Poshmark is concerned. And of course, she's amazing. Thank you, Manish. Thanks. Thanks again to Manish Chandra for joining Jason on stage at an evening with Code Commerce. Jason, tell the people about your next conference. 
Sure. We're going to be back in September in New York City uh, for our third two-day Code Commerce event. We've had a ton of great feedback the last two years, and we'll have more details soon about the exact dates of the event at events.recode.net. Until then, you can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please tell a friend about this show. You can also follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. Jason, where can people follow you online? They can follow me on Twitter too at Del Rey. I'm going to spell that because people spell it wrong. D-E-L-R-E-Y. And yes, that's of the king. Of the king. You are the king of commerce, Jason. To me at least. Oof. Put that on my gravestone. <laughs> okay, no, I will not. I hope I don't have to ever do that. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.